This is Our American Stories. And the Thanksgiving story, well, you're about to hear it for the hour. It didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. But the story of its miraculous birth and the pangs that accompanied its delivery to the new world began hundreds of years before this inauguration. What you are about to hear is the spellbinding story of how it all began and what it means to us today. They want to hit a Thanksgiving song. All right. All right. This is uh, this is a Thanksgiving song. I hope you enjoy it. Turkey, lurkey, do and turkey, lurkey, dap. I eat that turkey, then I take a nap. Thanksgiving is a special night. Oh, I love turkey on Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Thanksgiving is the only American holiday that has actually remained relatively innocent. It's not something that we have been able to commercialize. But there's something going on here more than feasting family and football. And I'm not talking about the time you constructed a belt-buckled paper hat. What is it about these pilgrims? Why do we pay so much attention to these immigrants to the New World? They were always viewed as irrelevant, weird, and different. They didn't start a college. The Massachusetts colony did. That college is called Harvard. The Pilgrims never became rich or influential. In fact, William Bradford, the governor of Plymouth Plantation, and the man who documents the founding of the Plymouth Colony, thinks at the end of his life that everything the Pilgrims had done had been a failure. So what is it about their experience that makes them so worthy of attention? That I may truly unfold the story of Plymouth Plantation, I must begin at the very root. As with many immigrants, their story begins thousands of miles away. It is told through the writings of one man who lived it. The year is 1607. The place, Scrooby Manor, in North Nottinghamshire, England. Under the flag of religion. Then said the Lord, I shall endeavor to manifest this history in a plain style with singular regard unto the simple truth in all things, at least as near to the truth as my slender judgment can attain. That was William Bradford. His record of everything that happens on their voyage and arrival to the New World is our best source of information. He keeps detailed records because he believes that what they are doing is tremendously important. Bradford's writing is later published as Of Plymouth Plantation, but it is not published until some 230 years later, in the 1850s. Lonely and intelligent, in a world that feels increasingly precarious and adrift to him, the 12-year-old Bradford seeks solace in the Bible. Bradford writes that reading the scriptures makes a great impression upon him, and the more he reads, the more troubled he becomes at the gulf between the world he sees around him and the simplicity and purity of the gospel. Oh, Father, who 
heaven, hallowed be thy He had this profound sense as a 12-year-old that the congregation he was a part of was corrupt, that the church was moving them in a direction that was not right, that they prayed to the depraved beliefs of mortal men that were moving them away from God. And so this was a deep conviction. And I think there you have the beginnings of a very complex, inward-looking person who was improbably preparing for the ultimate journey. In 1607, Bradford is an orphan living on his uncle's farm, but his passion is his faith. And without a prince, two men become his mentors. This famous and worthy man, John Robinson, was our pastor for many years. And without teraphim. Mr. Brewster, a reverend man like a father to me, became an elder of our church. Love a woman beloved of her. These two men guided us in all things. It is they who labored in this secret church to have the right worship of God and discipline of Christ according to the simplicity of the gospel. Yet others persisted to disturb the peace of our poor persecuted church. Return and seek the Lord their God. One wouldn't know it by looking at them, but these worshippers are breaking the law. The official state religion is the Anglican Church of England. King Henry VIII established it 70 years earlier in 1534. He placed himself at the head of the church, replacing the Catholic Pope in Rome. English Protestants were overjoyed. They saw England joining the great Protestant Reformation of Martin Luther and the overthrow of the old Catholic Church. Here's Dermot McCulloch, professor of church history at Oxford University. The old church had power because it said that it could help people to get to heaven by saying masses for their soul. Luther and the Protestants said that wasn't so. God had all the power, we have none. And by saying that, they said that the old church had no power. That is what split the Western world apart in the 16th century. But real change in the Church of England is slow to come. Many of the pilgrim separatists are fined or go to jail for not attending the Church of England and for starting their own separate congregation that secretly meets in people's homes. In the early 17th century, the Church of England still had remnants of the past like stained glass. The Church still had bishops and priests and deacons with cathedrals, choirs. In other words, it looked rather more like the old church, and a lot of Protestants did not like that one little bit. And when we come back, more of William Bradford's struggles back in England. We're celebrating the story of Thanksgiving here on Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Thanksgiving, 
and we go back to William Bradford and his struggles back in England. These pilgrim separatists feel the King's Church can never be purified. They must separate from it completely. That's the difference between a Puritan and a separatist. Puritans simply wanted to change it, make it better. Separatists make another big leap of the imagination. They say you shouldn't have a Church of England. You shouldn't have a church which is connected with the civil power. And in the 16th century, that's a very big deal. Because of the persecutions from the Church of England, the pilgrims decide to run away, to leave England in mass, to leave behind everything that they have known because their Christian conscience demands it. They arrive in the very libertarian seaport city of Amsterdam, Holland, which is the most exciting, prosperous, cosmopolitan city in the whole world, known for its religious toleration. You can do anything you want there, and the government won't interfere with you. Amsterdam's reputation in the early 1600s is about the same as it is today. A city famous for its prostitution and 500-plus alehouses. So when the pious pilgrims arrive in Sin City, it wasn't according to their expectations. Within a year, they decide to move again, 22 miles south, to the much smaller city university town of Leiden. Leiden is a much better fit, but shortly after arriving, another idea begins to generate a great deal of enthusiasm from some of the more daring leaders of this tiny little group. They feel called to move again, but where? Most are content with their labors here. We labor only as God wishes. Yet some prefer and choose the prisons in England rather than liberty in Holland with these afflictions. Faith, if some better and easier place could be found, it could draw many and take away these discouragements. And where would we go? Where could we go? What's of America? There are vast and unpeopled countries in America which are fruitful and fit for habitation. I have not heard that America is unpeopled. There are no civil men there, but only savages who mean. This is an extraordinarily audacious uh, proposition because up until this time, uh, there was only one existing supposedly successful English settlement, Jamestown, and that was hardly a success. Uh, People were dying at a frightening rate every year. The pilgrims decide to make their home in the new world where they can pursue their godly path without interference and without compromise. But how do these poor pilgrims get the money they need in order to finance the trip? They apply to investors who might like the idea of exploiting a bunch of religious fanatics like themselves. A deal was made. They use a big part of their very limited resources in order to purchase the aging vessel called the Speedwell. But the Speedwell will fail to live up to its name. She was called the Speedwell, and this was intended to be a vessel that would provide them with a way to explore the coast, search for furs, and if the worst should happen, it would provide them with a a method of escape uh, from the New World. About 55 pilgrim separatists leave Holland on the Speedwell for England. With a prosperous wind, we came in short time to Southampton. There we made port and found the bigger ship come from London lying ready, with all the rest of our company. The pilgrims see for the first time another ship loaded with supplies, waiting to join them for the trip across the Atlantic Ocean. 
This supply ship is called the Mayflower. The Mayflower was a merchant vessel, a cargo ship. She was not designed to carry passengers. She's about 180 tons, which means you could fit 180 casks of wine, tons of wine in its hold. She was beak-bowed, square-rigged, with high castle-like structures fore and aft. She was a very reliable ship, standard transportation of the early 17th century. The recent arrivals from Leiden are reunited with William Brewster and two fellow separatists, John Carver and Robert Cushman, who have been hard at work setting up the voyage. On August 5, 1620, as they prepare to depart, the pilgrims say their farewells, which are deeply emotional. Edward Winslow, who was one of the chief men going along on the voyage, describes the scene as follows. We refreshed ourselves after our tears with the singing of psalms, making joyful melody in our hearts as well as with the voice. And indeed, it was the sweetest melody that ever mine ears have heard. And then with mutual embraces and tears, they took their leaves, one of the other, which proved to be the last leave to many of them. After three years of planning and preparation, two ships, the Speedwell and the Mayflower, are finally on their way to America on what will prove to be the most historic voyage in human history. They weren't the people that you would expect to be founding a new colony. They weren't soldiers, they were not emissaries of a foreign government, they were not particularly well provided with supplies. At least half of them were separatists, that is to say radical Protestants, who were religious exiles, who had been living in Leiden, the Dutch Republic. They weren't the people you would automatically expect to be founding a new outpost of the British Empire. The Mayflower is under the command of Master Christopher Jones. He isn't a religious man, but he is a remarkably decent one. He is so moved by the pilgrim's devotion and faith that he offers to bunk with his petty officers and gives his cabin to the women and small children. He and his ship have been hired to take the pilgrim's provisions to America and then return to England. The two ships travel west for seven days, and then to their shock and dismay, the Speedwell begins to wallow and take on water. Not soon after the Speedwell has trouble, the master of the Speedwell noted that um, she was taking on more water than they could handle. Here's how passenger William Bradford chronicles this moment. We had not gone far, but Mr. Reynolds, the master of the lesser ship, complained that he had found his ship so leaky as he durst not put further to sea till she was mended. Because of the leaky speedwell, the ships do not turn back once, but two times. Can you imagine the miles that they retrace their steps all the way back to England? The pilgrims lose an entire month while attempts are made and valuable food provisions are sold in order to repair the speedwell. It's early September. This is not the time you want to sail to America. Westerly gales are screaming across the Atlantic. They'd be right in your teeth if you head out. William Bradford writes that some 20 passengers decide the voyage is not a very good idea and get off the ship for good. He also writes, it was judged that the speedwell would not prove sufficient for the voyage. 
upon which it was resolved to dismiss her and proceed with the Mayflower alone. On September 6th, 1620, fearfully late in the season, everyone got on the Mayflower, left Plymouth Harbor, and set out on her own across the Atlantic. Because of the Speedwell having to stay behind, there are many more people on Mayflower than they anticipated carrying initially. There were ultimately 102 passengers on, on Mayflower on a relatively small ship. It's a dark, dank, airless space, less than five feet high. So you, you, know, you were hunched as you walked up and down. There were some animals down there, goats and pigs and chickens and provisions. It was more like a cave, I think, than a place fit for human habitation. Along with 102 passengers on the Mayflower was between 25 and 35 crewmen on board. All being now compact together in one ship, we put to sea again with a prosperous wind, which was some encouragement unto us. The story of Thanksgiving continues after these messages. And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. But my goodness, there's so much more to the story. When we come back, that trip across the Atlantic to the New World, here on Our American Stories, and go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org. This is our American story celebrating Thanksgiving. We now pick up with the pilgrims sailing across the Atlantic on board the Mayflower with Captain Jones and his crew of delinquents. The rough and tumble crew do not take their cues from their kind captain. Bradford writes, Yet, according to the usual manner, many were afflicted with seasickness. A bloody psalm singing, God-fearing, puke-stocking bean farmer going to America. <laughs> See them quail, living little kicksy-wixies. One of the seamen of a lusty, able body, which made him the more haughty. He would always be condemning the poor people in their sickness. 
and cursing us daily with grievous execrations. <laughs> Into the bucket, girl! Worse than the owls! The haughty seaman tells the sick pilgrims how much he looks forward to the day he could sew them up in shrouds and feed them to the fishes. There's no sanitation facilities. If you are seasick, which many are, and have to vomit, if you have to perform your other bodily functions, you're doing it in a slop bucket and you're trying to hit the target on a moving deck. And a lot of people probably miss, so that it's not surprising that people comment on the stench below decks. Shipboard fare in the 17th century was pretty much what shipboard fare would be for centuries to come, and that is miserable. You've got beef in barrels, heavily salted, to preserve it. One daily ration of the ship's diet would give a sailor or a passenger on a ship like Mayflower over 6,000 milligrams of salt in the day. Sodium intake at that level causes dehydration and hypothermia, as well as having long-term effects like high blood pressure. The big problem in the 17th century was drinking water. The drinking water in, in England was not reliable, so people relied on beer primarily. And uh, children drank it, everyone drank it. And going to sea, the ordinary ration was one gallon of beer per day per person, which uh, comes out to, uh, you know, rather a lot of beer. The Mayflower is now halfway across the Atlantic, and the relentless teasing of the pilgrims is about to end for good. Of the haughty sailor who so figged us with his daily curses, it pleased God to smite this young man with a grievous disease and so was himself the first that was thrown overboard. Thus, his curses light on his own head. And it was an astonishment to all his fellows, for they noted it to be the just hand of God upon him. The death of a sailor is answered by the arrival of a new passenger. Oceanus Hopkins. Only one other passenger dies on the voyage. William Button, a servant, ignores the urgings of Captain Jones to drink his daily portion of lemon juice in order to prevent scurvy. And this disobedience costs him his life. Then, on November 9th, 1620, after more than two months at sea, a crew member spies a line of high bluffs gleaming far off in the early dawn light and shouts out excitedly to Captain Jones. But their jubilation quickly dims as word races through the ship that they made landfall far north of their intended Manhattan Island destination. Muskets first. Keep them dry. On Friday, December 16th, 1620, the Mayflower with its cargo of sickened and sea-weary passengers and crew anchors a mile offshore. Everything was wrong. I mean, they had to reach the shore by wading through ice-cold water to the shoreline. And Bradford says, at one point, The weather was very cold, and the spray of the sea lighting on our coats froze so hard we were as if we had been glazed. And they caught cold and they died. In the harsh winter ahead, half of them die. A fire during a snowstorm burns up much of their precious winter clothing. 
but the fire fails to reach the barrels of gunpowder. In January and February, sometimes two and three died in a day. Bradford calls it the heart of winter. It's just a very grim time. The biggest toll, the most painful toll, was by March, 13 of the 18 wives die. They die keeping their children alive. All seven daughters live, and 10 of the 13 sons live. Somehow they keep their hopes up by coming up every Sunday to listen to the preaching of William Brewster, who assures them that this is all God's will. Finally, by the middle of March, there's a turning point. It happens on a Friday. It's fair, and the sky is blue. They are still weak. They are still fearful when they spot a tall, muscular Indian wearing only a loincloth and carrying a bow break cover from the line of trees among their huts and walk boldly into their camp. They shout out, Indian, Indian coming. coming! Indian coming! Indian coming! With rifle in hand, they approach with incredible caution. But as he draws within range, the Indian shouts out in perfect English, Welcome! The pilgrims responded in kind. And then, in a fateful interchange, the next word from the Indian is, Have you got any beer? The pilgrims are caught flat-footed. They don't have any beer. They respond, Our beer is gone. Would you like some brandy? And the answer, to no one's surprise, is a wholehearted yes. As they drink the brandy, they discover that this particular Indian, whose name is Samoset, developed his English skills and his taste for beer by spending time with English fishermen who tried to colonize on the New England coast. What Samoset said that was particularly interesting is that there was a Christian Indian by the name of Squanto who spoke perfect English and was living nearby. Squanto became a Christian and spoke English because he was captured and made a slave for nine years in England before he was able to buy his freedom and return home on a ship captained by John Smith. Yes, the John Smith of Pocahontas. As Smith's ship departed, Squanto was almost immediately captured for a second time and sent to the much crueler Spain. Then, just as he was about to be sent to North Africa, where he would have been a slave for the rest of his undoubtedly short life, some Catholic friars were able to buy and rescue a few of the Indian slaves, including Squanto. So Squanto lives with the friars in a monastery, and he becomes a Christian. He also learns to speak perfect English and perfect Spanish, and learns to pray every day, and becomes quite devout. With the help of these friars, who had befriended him and became quite impressed by his fine mind and his remarkable character, he gets enough money to buy his way back for the second time. Two months before the pilgrims arrive to the Pawtuxet village in what is today Massachusetts, Squanto finds his village absolutely deserted. Everyone from his tribe has died from a series of plagues that swept across New England. Once Squanto meets the pilgrims, he will change everything. As William Bradford declares in his own recollections, as many as were able began to plant their corn, in which service Squanto stood us in great stead, shown us the manner how to set it. 
Also, he told us unless we got fish and set it with the seed, the corn would come to nothing. The fish helps the earth. It's if we're feeding our mother. He was our interpreter and was a special instrument sent of God for our good. Squanto never leaves the pilgrims until the day he dies. This is Our American Stories, the story of Thanksgiving. And when we come back, the final chapter. This is our American stories, the story of Thanksgiving. And we pick it off with the pilgrims being back on their feet, thanks to Squanto, who teaches them how to survive in the new world and guides them in building a trusting relationship with a neighboring Indian tribe that he's been living with. Now let's return to the story. On October of 1621, Bradford writes about the preparations for what we now know as the first Thanksgiving. Thus our peace and acquaintance was pretty well established with the natives about us. We began now to gather in the small harvest we had and to fit up our houses and dwellings against winter, being all well recovered in health and strength. We had all things in good plenty, for some were exercised in fishing, about cod and bass and other fish of which every family had their portion. There was a great store of wild turkeys, of which we took many. Our harvest being gotten in, our governor sent men on fowling, so we might, after a more special manner, rejoice together. They've made peace with the Indians, they had a good harvest. So they decided to have something that was familiar to them back in England, a kind of harvest feast. It was like God had sent them a strong message, okay, you're on the right path. You've actually made it through the first real test, which is surviving your year and having enough to continue. Squanto's close friend and Indian chief, Massasoit, arrives with 90 of his braves who are carrying a bunch of dressed deer. The table is set and the first Thanksgiving prayer is said. Oh Lord, hear us, Lord. How few, weak, and raw were we at our first beginning in this howling wilderness, in the midst of strangers. And yet, God, thou hast wrought this peace for us. Thou hast brought us these allies. The real heroes on this first Thanksgiving are the last four surviving pilgrim women who prepare the feast for the 140 attendees. Not surprisingly, 
These first Thanksgiving friends spend their post-meal time partaking in activities that are not too far from the spirit in which we partake in them today. They might have been racing, they might have been wrestling, they might have been competing with bow and arrow. I bet they were drinking together. It's a rowdy affair, it's a male-dominated affair more than anything else. They put on, to the best of their ability, a display of their weapons and their martial organization. So both sides are showing off their strength. Amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms. Massazoid's men went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor, upon the captain and others. One thing that's very important is that deer were a high-status food. They were very carefully bestowing these as marks of respect. For three days we entertained and feasted. Three days of celebrating. In Native society, that's typical. As a matter of fact, that's probably short. Did the Wampanoags eat the English out of house and home during these three days? Quite possibly. But the English are free to come and visit the villages of their native allies and receive similar hospitality. That's how kin treat one another. That's what the Wampanoags expect by virtue of this alliance. That's the point of the whole exercise. William Bradford and Massasoit will remain friends and allies for as long as they live despite increasing tensions from the arrival of thousands more Europeans into the Cape Cod territory. Bradford, though uncertain of the colony he founded, was certain about the final destination of his pilgrimage. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and being persuaded of them, and embracing them, and confessing that they were both strangers and pilgrims on the earth. But they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore God was not ashamed to be called their God. And he hath prepared for them a city. The pilgrims could never have dreamed of how much their quest for a godly republic would transform the world they were sailing towards, the searchers themselves, and the nation that would rise up long after they were gone, consecrated to their memory. We love the story of Thanksgiving because it's about alliance and abundance and envisioning a future where Native Americans and colonial Americans can come together and celebrate the providences of a single God. But part of the reason that they were grateful was that they had been in such misery, that they had lost so many people on both sides. So in some way, 
that day of thanksgiving is also coming out of mourning. It's also coming out of grief. And this abundance that is a relief from that loss. But we don't think about the loss. We think about the abundance. Oh, there's no place like home for the holidays. And that abundance is found in family, in going home for the holidays. If there is such a thing as a typical American Thanksgiving, the Spikiotich family dinner might just qualify. Every year, several generations come together over a boisterous, chaotic ritual no one wants to miss. Do we have gravy? It's truly an American holiday to me. I mean, this is our holiday. Nobody else has it like we do. The people who are here come together and we all understand what it is that we're being thankful for. This is our American holiday. From Atlantic to Pacific, Gee, the traffic is terrific. Oh, Today in our society, where there are no clear answers, we look back at a time and a holiday such as Thanksgiving that once had clear answers. This is very simple. The pilgrims stood for piety. They stood for patriotism. They knew where they stood. We don't. So we look back and we see Thanksgiving as a time where everybody is in a golden afternoon sitting together around the Thanksgiving table and the families are secure and the ideals are secure and there's football on the television, everything's wonderful. And it just fits very well. Thanksgiving retains a lot of meaning for Americans today. I think the people are conscious of that. The fact that they have food on the table, the fact that they can gather together, that has meaning to them and just enjoying a good time with your friends around a table and having a wonderful meal. Those are our true pleasures in life and shouldn't be underestimated. Thanksgiving makes us pause and say, we're lucky we have this. What started as a makeshift meal in a tiny New England village has today become a national celebration of feasting and family togetherness. Thanksgiving may not be the very religious day it once was, but the last Thursday in November is still clearly a sacred date on America's national calendar. For the holidays you can't beat home sweet home For the holidays you can't beat home sweet And great job on that, Greg. And what a story that is. And again, Thanksgiving didn't become a national holiday until Abraham Lincoln declared it so in 1863. And we learned about the abundance. And my goodness, we learned about the scarcity. We learned about the joy, but we also learned about the grief. By the way, the grief of simply leaving home and leaving everything you know, that's grief. Anybody who's ever done that, I know my grandfather. He shared it with me. He left Lebanon but it was easier then. Leaving home, then losing so many people, so many women, so many men. What a story, a uniquely American story. 
and we share it with you here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and on this show, we don't talk politics, we tell stories. Stories about love, hard work, redemption, and faith. And our first story of Amazing Grace, a segment we'll do every week, follows Chip Hunt. Mr. Hunt's addiction to drugs and alcohol took control of his life and stripped away everything he'd worked for, until one day, when a powerful moment of surrender to the Lord renewed his life. I'm Chip Hunt. I design and build homes. One of the things I know for sure is that God called me to build. Building is kind of my ministry. My father was a, had a genius IQ, but he was an alcoholic and he was an abusive alcoholic. And uh, he died at 43 in a car wreck because of alcoholism. And uh, my mother then uh, married another alcoholic. And I swore from those two experiences, that I would never drink, but but I did all through um, through college and, and high school and, and in my early working career. I didn't drink that much, but um, drinking was, was just a, a good time that got away from me. I was slowly creeping into alcoholism then. I, I got saved on May 18, 1981. I accepted Christ, and my life changed immediately. was clean and sober, not drinking, but after a, a three-year period, by my own decision, I drank one beer or a beer, and then it escalated from there. It wasn't like an, just overwhelming uh, alcoholism at that moment, but the one led to two, the two led to three all night, every night, and the, the only time I was really sober was just a few hours through the middle of the day. I had three beautiful sons. Uh, they, they never saw me sober during this time. My alcoholism increased to a point where uh, my wife finally had me committed to a, to a rehab. Through the rehabs that were putting me in, I would hear all these people telling war stories about cocaine and, and other drugs. So when I came out of one, I tried powder cocaine, but I could still function on that. But putting myself in bad places every night around that kind of people, I had crack cocaine put in front of me. And when I took a hit of crack cocaine, that was like every drug I'd ever taken, every high I'd ever had rolled into one three-minute high. It was a, a overwhelming, overpowering. Uh, it, it changed my, my thinking. It changed everything about me. You have a, a, a one-minute high, then you'll spend the next uh, 48 hours in this, this raging, craving monster inside of you saying, get more. Everything I had within six months was gone. Every My house, my cars, my business, everything went down the tubes so quickly. Being an addict is not like... Um, you can just say, well, your willpower, get clean on your willpower, because you can't, because it's like you have no hope. After swearing off drugs and dedicating himself to God, Chip began to see a gradual and distinct change in his life for the better. 
one day, I had a, a, a crack dealer with me that was supposedly helping me work. And I was driving down the road with that crack dealer in my truck and, um, and, and just so mentally low and just, just thinking, Lord, I would be sober if you just let me be the, the, the lowest person in your house. And, and at that point, I didn't audibly hear a voice, but God said, I, I will do that for you. I'll make you, I'll make you clean. And it, it was like he was standing there with his arms open behind me the whole time. He had never left me. But when, it, when, when, when I came to myself, just like the prodigal son came to himself, when I, when I realized the sincerity of, of God and the sincerity of this prayer I was praying in that moment, God made me clean. I just pulled over. And I said, you got to get out. I just put him out on the side of the road, and I turned that truck around. And when I turned that, when I turned around, it was like a load was lifted off of me. I, it wasn't like a thousand green stars and, or some warm, fuzzy feeling, but I knew by faith God was going to heal me. And that, that day I started, I committed myself, I committed my, my, my uh, rehabilitation to Him. And the next morning I got up early, opened my Bible, said, God, keep me clean and sober this day. And His Word was just, was just jumping off the page and has been ever since. Just like the prodigal son who only wanted to work for his father. He only wanted to go back and have a job for his father. But there his father ran to him. God ran to me. He just uh, would tell me every day that he loved me and that uh, um, he was just waiting for me to return to him. I'd prayed so many emergency prayers before, but not as, uh, as humbling myself and confessing that that you're Lord, you're God. Even though I had been saved in 1981, I had never been totally sold out, totally surrendered. Immediately, I was I was like a different person, and I went to to my my then wife and my children and and told them that I was sorry for for everything I'd done. I asked for their forgiveness. My boys, uh, as I mentioned earlier, had had never seen me sober, but, but he, he let them see me as a daddy. In that process, I lost everything. And I had well, a one-room cabin, and I, I, I couldn't even afford cable TV, so every night I'd come home, we'd play checkers every night. God used that time for my kids to get to know me. The finances got better, work got better. After that day, I can honestly say I never was tempted to, to do it again, never. When you call on God, and you confess that He is Lord and God and more powerful than, than any drug, than, than any sin, than any, anything that, that can destroy you or, or, or harm you. For, for me, the, the power of God was the only way. And, and I believe with, with all addicts that it takes God's power to break that, that addiction. One of the things that, that God has, has done in my life since then got me involved in mission work. I've been to uh, Honduras and Nicaragua over 30 times. I can't give him enough honor and glory for what he did then and what he's still doing in my life today. I'm clean and sober for 20 years now. And that's Chip Hunt's story. Thank you to the folks at Pine Lake Church in Mississippi. We're looking for your amazing grace stories. Sometimes it'll include God 
sometimes a family member, a friend, a total stranger. But once a week, we're going to bring you amazing grace stories because we all need more of it in our lives. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and leave your story. We'd love to share it with others. And this kind of confession, in the end, it brings everyone closer together. Thanks again, Chip. Your story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and our next story is about an American whose name we've all heard. In high school and in college, his novels are assigned reading. No doubt you've sipped the coffee named after one of his characters. Herman Melville's life reads just like his books, full of adventure, color, and penetrating genius. William Faulkner confessed he wished he'd written Melville's Moby Dick himself, and D.H. Lawrence called it one of the strangest and most wonderful books in the world. But the high esteem he commands today is far from the reality he experienced during his lifetime. Today, we're going to go on an adventure with the man who is now considered America's Shakespeare. Take it away. On June 23rd, 1842, an American whaling ship dropped anchor 2,300 miles southeast of Hawaii in the Marquesas Islands in French Polynesia. Two of its young sailors, sick of conditions on board, quietly jumped ship and melted into the forest. Without maps or compass, Herman Melville and his friend Toby Green fought their way through the jungle, uncertain of their destination. Here's Melville from his first book, Taipee. On we toiled, the perspiration starting from our bodies in floods, our limbs torn and lacerated with the splintered fragments of the broken canes, until we had proceeded perhaps as far as the middle of the break. I sunk down for a moment with a sort of dogged apathy, from which I was aroused by Toby, who had devised a plan to free us from the net in which we had become entangled. Melville and Toby had in fact fallen into the hands of the Taipei natives. The ferocious Taipees were well known for two things. Here's anthropologist Banked Danielson. These people uh, had a great predilection for human flesh. Once they had killed an enemy in a battle, they took him to the feast place, to the Tohuwa, as it's called, and they actually put uh, the body into an earth oven. They never cooked them. I mean, you always see in uh, humoristic uh, pictures missionaries being cooked and boiled in big pots. But uh, the Polynesians had no pots at all. So they had invented a very special method of preparing their food by baking it in an earth oven. It's a delicious way of doing it. Food prepared in an earth oven is much better than, shall we say, you know, fried, you know, food or cooked or boiled food. The second thing the Taipei were known for is told by Melville scholar Viola Sachs and psychologist Henry Murray. 
we have descriptions of people who went to the, the Marquis Islands of, of, for instance, the missionaries, that uh, what they considered the incredible sexual orgies, right? The dances uh, uh, showing your sexual organs, right? The parents who knew the islands and so forth uh, wouldn't let their, their sons go down there between the ages of 17 and 22 or something. They'd have to go to school up here because if they went there, they'd never be satisfied with, with an American girl. The Taipees placed the young Americans under house arrest. But not long after, Toby escaped alone while Melville found his freedom four months later. Melville's experiences in the Marquesas marked him for the rest of his life as a man who had lived among the cannibals. They also provided material for his first book, Taipei, published in 1846. Melville was rescued by an Australian whaling ship in desperate need of men, and he signed on as a seaman. Here's literary critic Alfred Kazin and Melville scholar Howard Vincent. He had very little formal schooling. None of the great American writers did, except uh, those who went to Harvard, like Emerson and Thoreau. He either went to Harvard or he went to the whaling fleet. He says, a whaleship was my Yale College and my Harvard. Now that is a great tribute to experience, the necessity of tough, rough, hard experience. Soon after landing in Hawaii, he earned his keep, working odd jobs as a dry goods salesman and a pin setter at a bowling alley. In August 1842, in hopes of working his way home, Melville enlisted in the U.S. Navy as an ordinary seaman. These 14 months on board would become the basis for his fifth book, White Jacket, published in 1850. Melville was 25 and had been gone from home for almost four years. He returned to New York and to his distinguished family. As one historian put it, young Herman's world was one of servants and dancing schools. His grandfathers had been heroes in the Revolutionary War, one a participant in the Boston Tea Party. Born on August 1st, 1819 in New York City, he was the third born of eight siblings. Herman's father put very little stock in his young son, writing this when his boy was just seven years old. He is very backward in speech and somewhat slow in comprehension, but you will find him as far as he understands men and things, both solid and profound, of docile and amiable disposition. Herman's father died when he was 12. Herman quit school, but his education never ceased. He devoured every book he could get his hands on. He took a job in his uncle's bank and his brother's store before he finally went to sea as an apprentice sailor. This was the beginning of many voyages that would lead to the adventures that would mark his literary masterpieces. Nobody had the experiences that Melville had as a young sailor, and no one made so much of these experiences as a writer and as a thinker. By the age of 25, Herman Melville had experienced more of the world than most men would in a lifetime. It was 1844 and Melville returned home with sailor's wages and exotic tales of life in the South Seas. Encouraged by his family and friends, he began to put his adventures to paper. His first book, based on his four months as captive among the cannibals in the Marquesas, 
was loved by Harper Brothers of New York, but they finally rejected it, saying it was too exciting and impossible to be true, and therefore without real value. Shortly after, a British and then another New York publisher bought the rights to Taipei, a peep at Polynesian life. Here's literary critic A. Robert Lee. It was greeted, particularly in England and France, as one of the great ingenuous American works. Here at last was the young American Adam casting free of home, mother, father, the great American family, apple pie, and he'd gone off into that terrible place, the whaling fisheries. Taipei was a great success. Reviewers, however, had trouble believing Melville's tale of life among the sensual cannibals until, quite by surprise, his long-lost mate, Toby, turned up in Buffalo, New York and confirmed the story. And there was another of these American wanderers, just as Twain would take that arterial Mississippi River and go down it, wandering, just as Poe would wander inside the chambers of his mind, just as Whitman would talk of the open road, this notion that Americans were on the move, the westering, futuristic impulse. Tremendous stuff to those of my ancestors who read it in Victorian England, sitting at home reading Trollope, Browning, Tennyson, listening to the family performances, Sunday church. Melville wrote a continuation of his adventures in the South Seas with Omo. But this second book would unfortunately be the high watermark of Melville's popularity during his lifetime. Here's Paul Metcalf, Herman Melville's great-grandson. Each book represents a different uh, aspect of his intelligence, of his emotion, of his energy, of his concerns. When you read, read the books chronologically, it's like reading his autobiography. Uncharacteristic of the times, Melville left moral judgments to the reader. Social reformer Horace Greeley wrote in a review, Taipei and Omo are almost unmistakably defective, if not positively diseased in moral tone, and will fairly be condemned as dangerous reading for those of immature intellects and unsettled principles. In August 1847, Melville married Elizabeth Shaw and moved to New York City. He followed Taipei and Omo with more Life at Sea tales, Marty, Redburn, and White Jacket. Then, on August 5th, Herman Melville met fellow American novelist Nathaniel Hawthorne. This encounter would affect Melville profoundly, and in turn, the book that he was struggling to write, first named The Whale, and later known as Moby Dick. And when we come back, more on the life of Herman Melville, America's Shakespeare, his story, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue our story about a storyteller and his struggle with the next novel that would change everything. Back to Greg Hengler and the story of Herman Melville. Melville saw in Hawthorne the writer he aspired to be and eventually dedicated the finished novel to his friend. Here's Hawthorne biographer James Mello. Somebody like Hawthorne could be an encouragement just by the fact that he had managed to do this great book, The Scarlet Letter, and working on themes about the dark side of human nature. And I think that encouraged Melville to to sort of rethink the book about the whale that he had already started doing and decide that he could make something greater out of it. Here's Melville historian Jay Leda. He wanted to write like Hawthorne. And so some of that admiration is really the admiration of, of a disciple, I think. Whereas Hawthorne took the general and made them particular, Melville tended to take real events and made them symbolic and suggestive. Here's poet and novelist Robert Warren. He wrote Hawthorne saying, you dare to say the unsayable. You recognize the evil in the universe. And he totally unlike, say, Emerson, who called all evil, all sin, merely the mumps and measles of the universe to be soon outgrown. That was not Melville. It'll never be outgrown. It's an unending battle against the white whale. In the fall of 1850, with an advance from his publishers, Melville bought a 160-acre farm in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. He named it Arrowhead. It's here where he would finish what would become the metaphysical classic, Moby Dick. Here again is A. Robert Lee. Shakespeare, whose language, whose voices, whose ventriloquism were everything to Melville. At once admiring Shakespeare, and at the same time wanting to say, we must have Shakespeare's here. Why no American Shakespeare's? In August 1851, Herman Melville finished Moby Dick. He was 31 years old and had written an American book worthy of Shakespeare. A vast, funny, and terrifying story of good and evil, told through the adventures of one man's mad pursuit of a great white whale. The book is a simultaneous combination of an adventure story, a detailed account of the whaling industry, a cautionary tale, and a metaphor whose meaning scholars still argue over today. Here's how Moby Dick begins. Call me Ishmael. Some years ago, never mind how long precisely, having little or no money in my purse and nothing particular to interest me on shore, I thought I would sail about a little and see the watery part of the world. It is a way I have of driving off the spleen and regulating the circulation. Whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bringing up the rear of every funeral I meet, and especially whenever my hypos get such an upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off, then I account it high time to get to sea as soon as I can. This is my substitute for pistol and ball. 
With a philosophical flourish, Cato throws himself upon his sword. I quietly take to the ship. There is nothing surprising in this. If they but knew it, almost all men in their degree, sometime or other, cherish very nearly the same feelings toward the ocean with me. The speed of his mind, the speed of his ability to go from one imaginative fancy to another, and above all, the way in which he covers the whole world, the whole cosmic world. After Moby Dick, which is now firmly established a classic, is the most cosmic book in American literature. And everybody's in it, and every kind of person's in it. He peaked at 32. Uh, he did other things, interesting, and just first rate, but they were different. There's nothing to compare with Moby Dick. But to, to do that and to speak in such profundity and to organize that, it's more than the Ninth Symphony. It, it, it's a juggling act of cerebration and of affect. That is, there is not only left and right hemisphere, but there's a lot of pituitary in there, too. There's a lot of passion in that book. Moby Dick has what all the, what all the uh, classic works of literature have, what we like to call a mythical situation, a situation that can appeal to anyone's imagination. Seeking a great beast, you see. It's the, it's the myth of the hunt. It's the myth of the big one that got away. It's like Faulkner's bear. Uh, and uh, anybody can understand this. Indeed, he develops the, uh, the sense of this uh, great white whale to the point that the whale may very well be the protagonist of the story. You can argue that he is the hero. But the notion that this is a chase story is simplistic to say the least. Underneath the visual subplot is the more real yet unseen plot. Dr. Dwight Lindley is a professor of English at Hillsdale College. He shares one example of how Melville uses this approach in his storytelling. Captain Ahab, who is this obsessive personality with some real psychological and moral problems. You know, he wants to be in charge in a way that's just humanly impossible for him to be in charge. And he shows that in order to pursue this vendetta, this impossible task, he has to persuade the men around him to follow him. And so he becomes a kind of rhetorical master. He tells these dramatic, lurid tales of his encounter with Moby Dick and brings them all on board to pursue the blood of this white whale and promises them gold. And they all pile in because he has such a fantastic way of speaking about it. He's very persuasive and dynamic. But then they end up going to their deaths. <laughs> And so one of the things that Melville is thinking about in the story is how tyranny actually works. You know, tyranny is this form of government where a single person dominates over the multitude in the power of his speech and his promises and his vision, but who doesn't actually have the good of the people in mind. And so one of the things that he's thinking about the whole time is how is it that people actually end up getting sucked into a path that's really bad for them? Humans all want a dramatic purpose in their lives. And, you know, we all want a really powerful reason for living. And so if we're not very excited about the prospects we have right now, uh, and we don't have a really transcendent, awesome reason to be alive, we're going to be easily talked into following somebody who does. 
if that person has the right kind of persuasive powers. This tale of Captain Ahab and his crew presented the realm of American myth. In fact, the great white whale wreaking its vengeance on its monomaniacal peg-leg tormentor is one of the most widely recognized images in our nation's literature. We encounter it in comic books, on coffee cups, and in numerous other artifacts of our popular culture. We have absorbed it, ingested it, and appropriated it as a permanent fixture of the American psyche. And when we come back, our final installment on this story about a storyteller, perhaps America's finest storyteller, America's Shakespeare, Herman Melville's story here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org where we celebrate artists' life from music to playwrights to country musicians and, of course, novelists. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and now for the final segment in this story about one of America's greatest storytellers, if not the greatest, Herman Melville. Let's take it back to Greg. Here's the great British actor Patrick Stewart reciting Moby Dick in Star Trek First Contact. He piled upon the whale's white helm, the sum of all the rage and hate felt by his old race. If his chest had been a cannon, he would have shot his heart upon it. Scully from the X-Files was such a fan of the book, she called her dad Ahab, and she was Starbuck. Hello, Starbuck. It's Ahab. According to Howard Schultz's book, Pour Your Heart Out, how Starbucks built a company one cup at a time, Starbucks co-founder Gordon Bowker suggested... They named their business after the whaling ship in Moby Dick to his then-creative partner, Terry Heckler, who responded, Nobody's going to want to drink a cup of Pequod. They decided Captain Ahab's first mate, Starbuck, would be the name of the then-unknown brand. Here again is A. Robert Lee reading and then unpacking Melville's symbolism in Moby Dick. I always go to sea as a sailor, because of the wholesome exercise and pure air of the forecastle deck. You couldn't ask anything better than that. That is the Boy Scout, that is Ishmael, going for that invigorating moment, the sea. We read on, for as in this world, headwinds are more prevalent than winds from astern. That is, if you never violate the Pythagorean maxim, so for the most part, the Commodore on the quarter deck gets his atmosphere second-hand from the sailors on the forecastle. He thinks he breathes it first, but not so. 
Now that, of course, is Melville tricking the reader. What on earth is the Pythagorean maxim? What on earth is this buried reference to these various headwinds? Well, not to put too fine an edge to it, it is simply that the Pythagorean maxim says, don't eat beans, it gives you wind. If you have wind, you fart. This is a reference inside this most classic of whaling books to a fart. Sailors fart and therefore, surprisingly, the Commodore gets his wind, if you'll forgive me, from the astern. In October 1851, Melville's second son was born to be followed by two daughters. Moby Dick's sales were poor, and the public's indifference toward the book caused Melville more problems than a bruised ego. He had bet too much on the book's prospective success. He had taken out a second mortgage on Arrowhead and was now having trouble making the payments. He was also overdrawn on the account with his publishers. Melville again needed a book that would sell. Pierre was written to appeal to his popular audience, but he had miscalculated again. Critics condemned the book, and readers didn't buy it. And the literary community even began to question his sanity. Melville's treatment of sexual themes of incest and illegitimacy was too much for his Victorian audience. Here again is Jay Lita. The literary establishments almost tabooed him from their company. By company, I mean their companionship. It was a very difficult last half of a life, but it was not a silenced one. Melville lectured three years before quitting the circuit. In 1863, he was forced to sell Arrowhead and move back to New York City and turned his attention to poetry. Melville was deeply affected by the Civil War. He traveled to the battlefront and observed the war firsthand. From newspaper accounts and personal observations, he would produce Battle Pieces in 1866, a collection of Civil War poems. Here again is Robert Warren sitting on the battlefield at Shiloh in southwestern Tennessee. Nobody wanted to read Melville. Melville was a dead man and felt like a dead man. And suddenly the war came and the war woke him up. His own grief, his own sense of defeat, was now merged with a much broader one, a wider one, a national tragedy. His personal tragedy was absorbed into that. And somehow you can't help feeling that that fact is what drove him to the poems on the Civil War. One cannot be uh, profound about life. I don't think it's possible without touching on the topic of death. Melville did more than touch on the topic. He explicated it. He wrestled with it. He chewed on it. He thought about it. He spoke to it. He was not obsessed with the topic, but it's in every one of his books. In December 1866, at the age of 47, Herman Melville took what amounted to be his first regularly paying job of his adult life. His salary? A mere $4 a day. It was a desk job working as a customs inspector, number 75, at the Port of New York. After 19 years of service, a family inheritance allowed Melville to retire from the customs house. He was 66. Once again, he was free to devote full time to his writing, 
There was still some interest in him in England, but at home, he was almost completely forgotten. And when Melville died at 72 of a heart attack on September 28, 1891, more people knew him as a retired customs inspector than as a great writer. Though he's now recognized as a master of fiction, readers then just found him weird. Melville was truly a man ahead of his time. It wasn't until the 1920s when the Melville revival began that he was finally recognized as one of the greatest American writers. So it should be no surprise that the blank scroll on his gravestone at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx still reminds us how little understood and appreciated this man was in his day. He said, when the coffin goes down, the, the fame goes up. He died of having all kinds of evidence that the fame was going to come. One proof of how American he is is how people discover him all over the world. Melville is Apollonian in his thoughts. He is clean and clear. He is Bach-like. But then he's Rococo and ornate and Melvillian in the expression of those pristine thoughts. I like that combination. It's much better than the other way around, a fuzzy thought said simply. Melville's metaphors slide into their meanings and hit you and tap. They don't hit you, they tap you and move away. And you have to say, wait a minute, he meant this and that. And that's the way with any great poet. Love and hate, light and dark, good and bad, morality and license. All these things run all through his book. We like people, don't we, who will take on the large questions. We've lost that Victorian confidence. He knew what it was to go up the mast, down into the bowels of the ship. He'd been the length of the ship, he'd been the breadth of the ship. The ship, if you will, as uh, some operative metaphor for how we live, the world, the community we find ourselves in. The New York Times wrote a week after Herman Melville's death, there has died and been buried in this city, a man who is so little known, even by name, to the generation now in the vigor of life that only one newspaper contained an obituary account of him, and this was but three or four lines. He has died an absolutely forgotten man. Thirty years after his death, a manuscript was discovered hidden in an old tin cake box owned by Herman's granddaughter. It's the story of a handsome young sailor that's falsely accused of fomenting mutiny. He is tried and convicted for this naval crime and is hung from the yardarm. The book, Billy Budd, it is now considered one of his greatest works. Billy Budd ends with these words. I remember Taft the Welshman when he sank, and his cheek, it was like the budding pink. But me, they'll lash me in hammock, drop me deep. Fathoms down, fathoms down, how I'll dream, fast asleep. I feel it stealing now. Sentry, are you there? Just ease these darbies at the wrist and roll me over fair. I am sleepy and the oozy weeds about me twist. Moby Dick is now one of the most famous books in the English language. For all the mockery that he endured during his life, 
It looks like Herman Melville got the last laugh. He may have seen it coming. For as Ishmael says, there are times when a man takes his whole universe for a vast practical joke. Though the wit thereof he but dimly discerns, and more than suspects, that the joke is at nobody's expense but his own. This is Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. And I was an English Lit major and devoured Melville, but did not know some of these finer points, especially the amount of time he spent at sea. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Herman Melville's story, America Shakespeare. And to hear this and all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Hours on artists, actors, musicians, directors, and of course, writers, writers. Writers.